Be seated. And I welcome all of you here today to uh, Ottawa Chinese Bible Church. My name is Dan. I'm the English congregation pastor here. And uh, we welcome you. Uh, if you're here with young kids, uh, we, we welcome the young kids to remain in the service with us. If, uh, if they get, you know, if they have to move around a little bit, I, I know some of, it looks like some of our families have, have found the balcony looks like a good place for the kids to hang out. You also can uh, hang out if, you, if you'd like. Uh, there's a, the welcome lounge outside also has the service streamed there so you won't miss anything that's happening here. And our nursery is down in the basement as well. So, but we welcome you uh, as you're here today. We, we pray that uh, the service might be an encouragement to you. Uh, over this month or so, we've been, uh, in our English congregation, uh, we have been going through it. It's, this fall marks the 500th year um, of the Protestant Reformation, 500 years, uh, particularly this October, since uh, you know, that famous act of Martin Luther where he tacked the theses uh, at the, uh, the door of the castle church in, in Wittenberg. And uh, so many churches, many Protestant churches, have been taking time out this fall to reflect on uh, not only the Reformation, the heritage, uh, but also some of the truths that uh, we're, 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 we're held forth and, and shown forth through uh, that period of time and in the 500 years since. Uh, so we've been taking one truth each week, but uh, today I'm actually going to pause a little bit more. Um, last week we talked about the, the truth that has been called the, uh, the formal cause of the Re Reformation, the, the, the sola, sola fide, which is justification through faith alone. And I, I do want to kind of pause here before going on to the next truth that I was going to go to, which would be just, uh, justification uh, on account of Christ alone. We're going to put that off for a week. And uh, I do want to kind of hesitate here and kind of, kind of sit here for a week and kind of think through a little bit more. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't pleased. One of, the, one of the things, it's been hard. As a pastor trying to, 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 to uncover these truths and kind of to, to, it's been hard for me to know how deep we go each week. I mean, we could take years on any one of these and study them out. And so it's been hard to, to try to not overcomplicate the faith for us. Um, and faith alone last week, I, I felt like there was one thing I, I wanted to get to, but we didn't really get to it. And so actually Ben Inkle, where's Ben? Is he here? He encouraged me. There he is. He encouraged me to say, well, why don't we just sit and come back to it next week. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to come back to faith alone a little bit this, today. I think this is going to work today. Uh, if you remember last week, we looked at the book of Romans, particularly the first three chapters of the book of Romans, and, and really it came down to um, this climax in, in Romans 3.28, where Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And I told you about how Martin Luther, when he did his German translation, uh, for the people of Germany, uh, actually how, how he caused a great deal of controversy because of this verse. Because what he did in translating from the Greek, rather from the, the Latin Vulgate, which was the, church, which was the version of the Bible in use by the Catholic Church at the time, he, he translated directly from the Greek. And in his translation from the Greek to the German people, he added this word, alone. And so in the German Bible, you will see uh, it's translated, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. It caused a great deal of controversy, as you might imagine that it did. And so what we looked at last week was, was Martin Luther justified, to, to use a different sense of that word, was Martin Luther justified in adding this word alone 
And is this a, an addition to what is found in the text, or is it a clarification of what is found in the text? And we read the text in context in Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, reading in context, whether you think it was appropriate or not for Martin Luther to put the word in there, we would say that he was uh, uncovering the idea or clarifying the idea that what Paul is speaking of in those three texts, and we looked at the context of what the Apostle Paul is speaking of in those texts, is how is man, how, how, how are people able to be in a right relationship to God? And if you remember how we walked through uh, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 and, and, and into chapter 4, we saw Romans chapter, for example, 1 and 2, actually 2 and 3, we saw Paul was making this airtight case that all of us, all mankind, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, religious people, irreligious people, he made an airtight case that none of us can stand before a holy God. None of us can stand uh, in our own righteousness before a holy God. And he, he, he closes that section in Romans chapter 3 by saying, we contend that no one will be justified by the works of the law. Gentiles cannot be. They never even had the full revelation of God's character that the Jewish people had in the law. And the Jewish people, though having received the full, this revelation of God's character in the law, they judged people for the same things that they did. And he, he quotes from the Psalms that says, and therefore we contend no one is righteous. No, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And so Paul speaks and he says, there now is this righteousness that is apart from the law, this righteousness that has been revealed in the gospel, this righteousness that is a gift, a gift of God's grace that can only be received, it cannot be earned, and he even makes the logical case in the end of Romans chapter 3 and into Romans chapter 4. What makes a gift a gift is that you don't work for it. If you work for something, it's called wages. It's called earnings, right? All of you guys get a paycheck. You get, you know, are you, maybe if none of you guys have not yet received paychecks yet, maybe you've played at least the game of life and you know that as you move your car around the game board, you hit those marks that say payday and you're like, yes! I worked hard for this by spinning that little thing. But Paul makes the case that if you work for something, they're called wages. And Paul has said that the, we do earn something. We have earned something. We have worked for it. It's in Romans 3.21, which says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he makes the point that Abraham, our father in the faith, was declared righteous, was, was justified, was counted as righteousness by faith. And, and, and Paul says, by faith apart from the works of the law. And he makes this case that before Abraham, uh, before Abraham uh, receives the sign of the covenant of circumcision, that God declares Abraham righteous on account of his faith. And so this verse we looked at last week, but I, taught, I alluded to last week that there's a pushback to faith alone. And this pushback is found particularly as we compare it to another part of Scripture, and I want to look at that part of Scripture today, particularly as we compare it to James 2.24. So the pushback is, is very clearly here. For James 2.24, reading it together, we see, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so all of you right now are going, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? 
All right, we're, we're, we're Ottawa Chinese Bible Church. What, uh, and I would say what, what, what we, want to, we want to describe to you in Ottawa Chinese Bible Church is Bible means a great deal to us here. We put it into the name of our church, right? Bible Church. And so we want to bring to us and meditate on into the Word of God. And, and so if we are saying that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, but James comes along and says, no, 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 you see that a person is justified by faith or sorry, justified by works and not by faith alone, we have an issue. We have a, a problem. We possibly have a contradiction. And that's really what we want to wait a little bit here. Is this a contradiction? I feel like just like waiting this right here to let you guys kind of go, oh, man. Like, I, I know, some, so you guys, I, I sometimes, I go to like these atheist websites sometimes. I'm weird like that. I do that sort of thing. And I always love the pages that are like, all these contradictions in the Bible. Ah, right? And, and, and so many times they're not actual, like you just have to read a little bit. And it helps to understand what an actual contradiction is. We, we sometimes think a contradiction are two statements that are in opposition to one another, right? And sometimes we have a very non-technical understanding of what a contradiction is. But it's not a contradiction. Some two, two statements in, in, a, in opposition to each other are not contradictions. What a contradiction is, technically, is when something is and is not in the same respect and at the same time. That, that's the proper philosophical, technical definition of a contradiction. When you make a statement of something that is and is not in the same respect at the same time. Let me explain to you what a contradiction is not. Let's say you're in the waiting room, and I got this from another pastor. Let's say you're in the waiting room of a doctor's office. Okay, and every once in a while, the, the door, the nurses go through the door, and so the doctor's you know, door swings open, and, and, and you're nosy, and you can hear you know, some statements the doctor is making kind of slipping out through the crack in the door when it's open. And you're, you're, you're sitting there, and you're kind of nosy, and you're bored anyway, and you hear the doctor, the door cracks, you know, swings open, and you hear the doctor telling a patient, strenuous exercise will do you no good. Okay? And so you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're hearing, and you're hearing, and you're just kind of bored again. And then a couple minutes later, the door swings open again, and you hear the doctor say, strenuous exercise will do you a great deal of good. And then you walk in to the doctor and you say, hey man, you're a quack. Like what, what gives, doctor? Like you, I heard you telling one patient strenuous exercise will do you no good. I hear you telling another patient that strenuous exercise will do you a great deal of good. How can I trust anything you say, you walking inherent contradiction? And the doctor explains to you, obviously, that the first patient has a heart problem, a heart condition. And so strenuous exercise will do him no good. And the doctor explains to you that the second patient was getting a little overweight. And the doctor says, I'm, I'm concerned. You need to, to work out some more. So strenuous exercise will do you a great deal of good. You've heard the same person making the same statement, but he's not making it at the same time in the same conditions. And thus it's not a contradiction. And so as we come to these two passages in Romans and in James, one of the things, that's what we have to ask. We have to ask, are they actually making these 
seemingly statements in opposition to one another, but are they making them in the same way, in the same context, to the same people? Now, another thing I would say before we kind of look into these verses is that we as Christians, I think, would want to give, like we're not the atheists writing some website blog where it's like, ha, 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 I tricked you guys. As Christians, I think we have a great deal of motivation for trying to understand charitably what John and what, uh, what, John and what uh, the Apostle Paul are saying. Where, because number one, if not only because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That we understand that it's not just these human authors that are writing, but it's God who is, who's inspiring, God breathing through them, God inspiring them to write what God wills for the church to receive. But also because we actually have testimony and record in scripture that, that Paul and James were... were we're in cahoots with one another. In Galatians, I don't know how to say that any better. Galatians chapter 1, Paul actually talks about the gospel that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not receive it from any other man. But after he had worked out his articulation of the gospel, it says in Galatians chapter 1, that he goes up to Jerusalem and meets with these reputed pillars of the church, James and Peter, he calls Cephas. And he meets with the church and he submits Here's the gospel that I've been preaching to the Gentiles and they extend to Paul the right hand of fellowship and they say, good on you brothers, go, go and preach this, just remember the poor. And he says, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And so James and Paul are not mortal enemies locked in this kind of battle of uh, faith. No, faith and works, they're not this. They, they, have, they have received from the Holy Spirit the one and the same message. So as we're looking at this, we want to see is this like the doctor speaking to these two patients? And so let's read in James together and see how James, James's teaching here, rather than contradicting Paul, complements Paul's teaching. We're looking here at James 2.24, but you know we need to read in context. So let's go to James chapter 2. And, ooh, that didn't quite fit there, but oh well. James chapter 2, just to start out the chapter, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but this could give us enough of a little bit of the context. James chapter 2, verse 1, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or even sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James starts his discussion in chapter two and we see immediately that this is a discussion that James is starting about loving one's neighbor, about applying the great commandment that Jesus has given us, I mean the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, James goes on to say, this is the royal law of love that Christ has given to us. And so this discussion begins with this discussion about loving one's neighbor and treating people fairly in the church without regard to their appearance or economic standing. And so we see immediately there's a much, much, much different context here. James is not speaking here about how to be right before God, as Paul was, as we looked at the context last week. James literally says here, my brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith. So he's actually speaking, now that you have and you're holding on to the faith that we have been teaching, here is how now this, the faith, your faith, is to be applied in the context of this Christian community. How do we treat one another as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus? But, so, so just that gives us at least a framework of how this discussion begins. But we pick it up really in James 2.14. So James 2.14, this is where the discussion really starts. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's take this bit by bit. James introduces the topic in verse 14. The first sentence. And notice what he says here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? So here we're introduced to a person who is making a claim We're introduced here to a person who is making a profession. Notice that James doesn't say anything here in this verse. We can read ahead a little bit, but in this verse, James is not making any statement whatsoever about whether this person actually has faith or not. What he's saying is, here you have a person who says, I have faith, who makes a profession. I have faith, and yet this person has no works. And I can imagine from the context that we've already looked at, what he means here by the works is these works of love, this conformity to the royal law of Christ, this idea of we're not showing partiality, we're not showing favoritism among the brothers. So this would be a person who says he has faith, yet has absolutely no love for his neighbors or shows partiality, except... Now, 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 listen, can you imagine such a person? I mean, James is just a good preacher, right? I mean, can you imagine such a person? I mean, this is ridiculous, right, for you guys? It would be so ridiculous to think of a person who, you know, says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I went to camp once when I was a summer. They, they did that over me, and yeah, I'm a Christian. And you're like, you don't, What? Jesus means nothing to you. I've never seen Jesus mean anything to you. What do you mean you're a Christian? I mean, uh, you know my brother. I love my brother. But my brother went on this online dating site once. And he was so proud of himself because when they asked what religion he was, he wrote Christian. Because on the online dating service, you're supposed to write like what religion you are. And so my brother calls me up and is like, yeah, I did this online dating. I wrote Christian. I'm like... I mean, I know my brother. He, he's not a Christian. He's never prof- even professed to be a Christian. Like, this online dating checkbox was the only time I've ever seen him even profess. Right? But we know people who would make a claim, or if you ask them what, what their faith is or what their religion is, they will mark the box Christian. And yet there's, there's not, nothing. We've seen not, no evidence whatsoever 
in line with that profession. No tenderness, no demonstration of love, no desire to be in Christian fellowship, no generosity of spirit toward the less fortunate, but they say they have faith and so they mark that box in the sense as Christian. And so this, first off, James is speaking about a claim of faith. Secondly, look at the question that James asks. Can that faith save him? James is speaking about the type, the quality of faith that saves. Now, the King James Version, some of you guys read the King James Version, and it's good. It's a, great, it's a good translation. But I really believe they, they have done a disservice here with this translation of this verse. In the King James Version, it just says, can faith save him? Who's got a King James Version? Right? Can faith save him, right? What's happening in the Greek, though, is there's an article connected to the word faith. A definite article, meaning that James is actually pointing out a specific type of faith. In fact, the, the faith that is referred to in the first part of the verse. Can that faith save him? And so every modern translation, apart from the King James Version, every modern translation brings this out. For example, the ESV, which, which I use and many of you use, can that faith save him? In the NIV, can such faith save them? Going back to the, the type of faith exemplified in the first part of the verse. In the NLT, makes it very clear, the New Living Translation, can that kind of faith save anyone? The NASB, which is given the reputation of being a literal wooden translation, says, can that faith save him? The Net Bible, can this kind of faith save him? And the Holman Standard Bible maybe makes a little bit more of an interpretive um, rendering when it says, can his faith save him? So speaking of the, the faith that, of the man who claims, oh, I've got faith, but yet nothing. And the most important thing to notice here is James speaking about the type of faith that saves A claim of faith that is not accompanied by any sort of love is an empty claim. And that's the point of the illustration in verses 14 and 15. And this is supposed to be a funny joke. I mean, I don't know how funny the writers of... They're pretty funny, but... If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, be warmed and filled... You do nothing. Does that help the person? But I claimed and I professed that he would be warmed and filled. And James is saying, no, yet nothing happened. Nothing actually happened. There was no actual transaction that helped the person. It was empty. It was just meaningless, dead words. And that is what he's speaking of here. So he says, so also, so also. So this is an illustration. This is an illustration of a person who would claim they have faith but has absolutely no demonstration, absolutely no accompanying love. This is the illustration. It would be as though I said, here you go. Oh, you're hungry? Here, eat this. And have nothing in my hand to give to the man. So also... It says at the end here, verse 17, so also faith by itself. And here again, there's that article in the Greek that this rendering in English doesn't bring out. But so also this faith, so also the faith, this faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If a person makes a claim but has nothing, it is meaningless. 
We read further, when we read further, it becomes clearer. James is speaking about a specific type or quality of faith. He goes on to read in James 2.18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, you believe that God is one? Good, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so James is, spe- is pointing out here that there's a type of faith, there's a type of belief, there's a type of assent. There's a type of understanding or recognition of who God is and what, who Jesus is and what he has done that is not the type of faith that James is directing us to. In fact, this type of faith even the demons have. They give assent. Remember, it was interesting. Even before any of his disciples would say, you are the Son of God, Jesus is, is revealed to be the Son of God in the Gospels by whom? By the demons who are saying, get away from me, the Son of God. Even by, even by Satan in the wilderness and his temptations has said, if you are the Son of God indeed, throw yourself down. The construction in the Greek, there's two ways to say if you are. If, and there's two ways of saying that in the Greek. And, it, and, the, and even the devil's using this type of if you are, meaning if you are, and we all know you are. There's a recognition, there's an assent, there's an understanding. And James is saying even the demons have that and they shudder. They shudder. Because that is not the type or the quality of faith that we are referring to. Faith that is mere intellectual assent is not faith at all. And Paul would have agreed with this wholeheartedly. But go back in the same verse. So James is speaking about a type. So, so if we go back to our, our verse in James 2.24, just from the context alone, we want to read these words in the context that James is introducing to us in the way that he's describing faith to us. You see that a person, and remember he's speaking about a person who's making a claim to having a specific type of faith, a person who's claiming to have faith, you see that a person who claims to have faith is justified by works and not by, and I'll add here in our understanding from the text, not by a profession of faith alone. A profession of faith alone saves no one because even the demons believe and they shudder. So James is speaking about a specific type of faith, but We'll add to it. We'll go back here. I want to go back there. It's not going back. There we go. Type of faith. That one. And that one. There we go. Doing better this week with it. James 2.18. Go back a little bit more. I want to show you something else about these verses we just read. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And here is James's words. Show me. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith, and I will show you my faith. And so James is speaking here, and we have the second piece of the puzzle. This is the second major piece of of understanding the context in which James is speaking. He is saying that our works will be a demonstration of the genuineness of our faith. That if you just have this intellectual assent, then yes, you will not have any accompanying works to show that your faith is genuine. For it is not genuine faith, but genuine faith will be demonstrated through and be resulting in works that can be seen and manifest. 
James is not speaking about works in opposition to faith, but works that demonstrate faith. And that's the key. Genuine faith will be demonstrated through works. And remember, we're speaking about works of love. And so we can add again to this person to this puzzle. You see that a person who claims to have faith is justified by works which are the evidence of their claimed faith and not by their profession of faith alone. Reading in context, this is, I think, the only way I can understand what James is actually saying. He's speaking of a specific quality of faith that actually becomes manifest and demonstrated to all by what they do. So let me put it this way. If a person has no basis for claiming that they have faith, if there's no evidence that their faith is genuine, in other words, it could be said, there is, they are not justified in claiming to have faith. Right? I used that word that way earlier today. I said, was Martin Luther justified in putting alone in that verse? Was, he, was that a valid thing for him to do? Is he vindicated in doing so? And, and, and so this is this claim, what I'm, what I'm pointing out here is that there's another definition of justification that's not speaking about our standing before a holy God. It's a definition of justification saying, are the words that I'm speaking, vind- am I vindicated in making a claim by the things that are evident to, all, to us all? Are we vindicated? Let's go on to see if the rest of James bears this out. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Again, do you want to be shown this? That faith apart from works is useless. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, and here's the key part, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled, excuse me, that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And there's verse 24. You see that a person is justified by... Think that'll work? There we go. And notice here that James actually uses the same text that Paul uses. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, or it was counted to him, as righteousness. So Abraham's use of the story of Abraham agrees with the way that Paul uses the story as we saw last week. Abraham believes God and is counted to him as righteousness. This is what we talked about, that, that imputation, that counting of righteous that, 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 that Paul goes on to say. Even David talks about the, the one who is counted, uh, whose sins are not counted or credited to him on the basis of God's forgiveness. Yet James points out